Hello, everyone. Before this episode starts, just want to say it was recorded live at Clock Tower Con in D.C. back in April. Uh, now that we're out of the Bad Moon Rising stuff, I'm going to be posting episodes on various different topics. This is the first of those. And I also wanted to say that if you are interested in coming to a Clock Tower Con, there's going to be another one. Well, another two, actually. And I believe I'm going to be going to both. Uh, one in Vegas at the end of October and one again next year in D.C. in April again. So be on the lookout for those. I plan to be recording live podcast episodes at each, as well as organizing other events, so should be a good time. Anyway, I talk more about Clock Tower Con in the episode a little bit, so here's the episode. Welcome to the Cult of the Clock Tower. I am Andrew Nathanson. Every other week, a special guest and I have an in-depth discussion about a, well, something from Blood on the Clock Tower. It was a character from the game Blood on the Clock Tower for a while, but we've run out of characters in the base three, other than fabled and stuff. That being said, we're going to be talking about something else today, and joining me is Ed. Hey. Hey, Ed. This episode's also a little bit different, because we are recording it live in front of a studio audience. Not that this is a studio, but it's kind of an echoey room. I hope it sounds good. I mean, even if it doesn't, it's going live, right? So, That's true. Yeah. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about... Oh, I sh- should specify why we're doing that. We're at Clock Tower Con. Um, yes, this is Clock Tower Con. Uh, we're recording a... Woo. Despite the appearance of how professional this is, uh, the con is very organized. <laughs> we're just here to talk nonsense, but the con is all over. This is amazing. This is yeah. so organized. This is on point. We're starting on time, which we have never done when we've had a podcast. <laughs> it's, it's true. Often our podcasts are delayed by hours or more. And I also, I was, I had a moment as you were doing the introduction where I was really tempted to start singing one of the themes and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't pick between the different themes and was like, nah, and then just did none of them. Them. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, Clock Tower Con has been great so far. However, we do only have an hour, so instead of talking about how great Clock Tower Con is, let's get to our topic, which is revisiting Trouble Brewing. Yeah. Um, it's been quite a while since we talked about Trouble Brewing on the podcast. Uh, this will be probably a little bit more from like my perspective, because the audience has heard a lot more from me about Trouble Brewing. You have been on uh, episodes in Trouble Brewing as well, but basically we wanted to take a look at uh, things we've talked about in the past in Trouble Brewing, uh, things I've talked about. And things we haven't talked about as well, and just talk about how our opinions have changed, how they've stayed the same, things where our opinions have gotten stronger, uh, generally about strategy in the game, but also about storytelling and other stuff. So, with that being said, Ed, what's something about Trouble Brewing that you used to think, in your opinion, has gotten even stronger over time? I'm going to just lead with something that people don't associate with me, because I love this. Randomly lying, just because you feel like it in Trouble Brewing, very powerful. Like... People approach Trouble Brewing and they, they play the first game, they try and bluff, and they don't really know what they're doing. Um, but that's how this works, right? You play Trouble Brewing as your first game, you don't know what you're doing. You just make it up as you go, and you try some stuff. And usually, you just lie about what you are, um, or you tell the truth about what you are. Those are basically your options. And people... It's hard to do something different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't... They, they don't do role swaps. They don't necessarily do... They, there's no, like... The, the strategy develops, right? And... I love that that's the way place people start. They just look at this sheet and go, sure, I'll claim to be that. That seems fun. Um, that, all that fits with what I'm trying to do. Uh, and then people go past that and they go, all right, okay, well, now I'm doing something for a goal. I'm, try- I'm bluffing this because I want to do that. And that's great. Um, that is really effective. It gets you a long way. At a certain point, actually being too predictable with that becomes its own thing. And 
uh, people start reading you. People start reading you by based on what you're telling them. And I get a, a huge amount of joy occasionally of going. I realise that I'm the Raven Keeper, but I am going to bluff Soldier anyway. I it, it's not it's not helping. It's not a, it's not a useful thing for me to bluff. But what it means is that the evil team don't know. And if I don't know what I'm going to bluff, they certainly don't. I, I think that I think that it's the sort of thing where. I, I, I've often thought, and this is kind of, I don't know if I even put this in here, but this is something that I've thought for a while, is that uh, sort of the optimal place to be in terms of how people read you and your meta is, well, the optimal place would be you get people to think exactly what you want them to think every time. The reasonable place that I think most players should be aiming to get to is where when you're good, the evil team doesn't know if you're telling the truth or not. So they don't know if they should be killing you. They don't know if they should be poisoning you. And that has the side effect of also, you know, making it so that the good players don't know that either. But eventually you come clean and things will start to fit together. So I, th I think that's kind of where this comes from, is that if you're just randomly lying, that randomness, if you can actually make it random, is, is, is basically accomplishing that. It's yeah. putting you in a place where you're sort of in between and it's really hard to tell that apart. Yeah, and I have this as a very uh, philosophical point about Clock Tower generally. Um, the game is most fun when everyone is good at being both good and evil because you randomly draw the tokens out of the bag. You can't just have, like, you can't have some people who are the best evil players in the world and always give them evil so that you have the best possible game and always give the best good players the best possible characters for them so you have the best possible game. You're drawing randomly out of a bag. So by, the, by nature, if someone's not very good at being evil, everyone has a bit less fun because you win too easily. So actually, the best thing for everyone is for everyone to be equally good at playing both sides of the, both sides of the alignment spectrum or the flippers. And so doing things that you don't necessarily do normally really helps because it helps you play as good as if you were evil, as, as evil as if you were good. It helps you do both at once in some cases. And uh, it challenges you to think about things differently. Um, it's really easy to fall into, I, I, I'm this character that I know and I'm going to do this thing. And it's like, actually, if you do that every time, people are going to play you differently. And yeah. uh, I take a lot of joy in just being like, oh, I'm going to do some nonsense. I also have been recently causing a lot of trouble by, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I stopped doing roll swaps this is something else that okay. is in it. I stopped doing three for threes and I stopped doing uh, any sort of claiming on day one because people just lie or they hard claim and I'm not interested in either of those things because if you hard claim to me I have to remember um, <laughs> and if and if you lie to me I should remember and I don't care because but people day one I'm, you're not giving me anything valuable like n we all know that day one is sort of like a just testing the waters situation and maybe you find one person you trust but most people don't you tend to have a sort of like uh, maybe about everyone so what I decided to start doing is I ask people really weird abstract questions <laughs> because they are much more inclined to tell you the truth <laughs> so uh, to, just to give you an example of one I've, I've used a couple of times this weekend uh, if you were walking into an airport and you got to TSA and you had your character icon in your bag how worried would you be? Um, That's... <laughs> That is, I would probably answer that truthfully. See, it's so much fun for people to engage with that they just go with it. Like, even I've even had evil players be like, yeah, I know that I should be bluffing, but it's so much more fun <laughs> to answer correctly. Uh, that's not helpful to the situation. It just, I've been finding it very fun. You should try stuff like that occasionally. Um, if you have ideas of other random questions I should ask people, please do tell me. Is your character more like a pancake or a waffle? Yeah. <laughs> uh, people listening at home won't get that, and that's okay. <laughs> I, uh, you mentioned role swaps. I think that role swaps are strong. Yeah. Like, very, very strong. 
Uh, I think they're one of the strongest things you can do in Trouble Brewing in terms of gaining a strate strategic edge on the evil team because, uh, and in order to set up a role swap, I don't think you really need any kind of special circumstances. So um, a lot of players I've noticed will do role swaps when they have like some confirmation of one side or the other, like a washerwoman confirming some townsfolk, they'll swap with them. That's fairly standard and easy. I think that it's good for almost anybody to role swap with anybody else because you could swap with an evil character, in which case you're giving up that information. But like, what do you lose? Like, yeah. And you can do it. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter if they're lying. Yeah. That's the nice thing about a role swap is that if they're lying, it's almost better because you're confusing the evil team more, right? I, I think that it's a lot of players think of role swaps as I have to trust this person, then I can swap what I'm claiming with them. But really, you can just swap what you're claiming with anybody and that will accomplish the task of getting whatever the information was that they wanted to get out into the game. It'll get that out into the game. Whether it's true or not, if they were lying, that's fine. They were going to put that information into the game anyway. So it doesn't matter that it's coming from you. But that has the chance where every, if everybody did that, I think most of the role swaps would end up being between good players and that would confuse things for the evil team. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it, you probably don't want everybody to do it because then you know to expect it. But like, you know, ha if half the people do a role swap like that, I think it just ends up being quite a bit better for the good team. Yeah, and I think um, we talked about this a bit when we were talking about BMR, the intro to BMR. No matter what, the good team is always most benefited by getting the information out there. We don't care who the information's from. I mean, yeah, if you're an empath, it's tricky to share that information without it being identifiably you. But, you know, top four, I don't I don't care who's telling me the top four information. I just want to know the top four information. Like, I, undertakers, uh, you know, outside accounts, the fact that there is a, someone claiming soldier and ravenkeeper, I don't need to know who it is. I just need to know that it's out there because that is what dictates my strategy and how I use my ability. Um, if I, I've I, heard nothing about any protection characters, I ain't coming out as a fortune teller. Yeah, I, I can also say that... Um, uh, of the times when I've been evil and like lost badly, mm. uh, most of the time that's because of a role swap that I didn't catch. Where it's like I thought I was killing the you know like the empath who's been getting really strong information, and I'm not. Or I thought I've been killing the fortune teller to stop them from finding out more and narrowing down that I'm the demon, but I haven't. And or or like a really effective one between like a soldier and a monk. And it's also the joyous one of the joyous things about role swaps is the better you know your group, the more fun they get. Because uh, I've got players in my group now who know each other well enough that they can look at each other in the morning and the expression on the person with information's face tells the other one what they should claim. Like, I've had an empath wake up in the sort of like making this grimace and the other person was immediately like, right, we're killing one of their neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just, they just knew to look at each other because they were role swapping. And this is like, you, you get more and more strategy out of it as you go. All right, now we've, got, we've spent about 10 minutes getting through two of our like 30 or so bullet points here. So let's, uh, yeah, let's, I, uh, let's move on to a couple other things that I think we can go over somewhat quickly. Still in the section of things where our opinions have gotten stronger. Uh, my opinion is that skipping executions is almost always bad in trouble brewing. Um, I, I have an opinion later, which slightly disagrees with this. That's but fine. We'll get to that later. That's why we color coded them, so we know who wrote it. <laughs> Admittedly, <laughs> we color coded these, and at this range, yours is really legible. My hot pink, quite <laughs> tricky to read, but we've done it now, and I'm sticking with it because there's no situation where hot pink isn't the right answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think I think that skipping executions is almost always bad in trouble brewing. I noticed quite a few games recently where it's like when I look back at them and it's like what was the turning point especially games where it was sort of like the good team feels like we didn't have much of a chance mm. uh, and usually looking back on those it's like there was a skipped execution you would have had one fewer demon candidate and I think most likely they would have got it if they had uh, done it and that can even be on something like skipping on like six yeah. that's a common place where people want to skip I've been and this is something where I used to think that was like pretty much okay 
just in the past like few weeks, I've started to go back on that a little bit, which is that now I think that skipping on like six, if there's someone who's been doing a really good job of uh, like making their soldier or monk go under the radar, you could be depriving yourself of value there. And I think that usually like you can kind of predict who's going to be killed around then anyway. So you're not going to like execute them. Yeah, I, I the, the, I'm going to come to my counterpoint now because I that would because who cares about makes more sense than coming scripts. to it later. <laughs> um, yeah, we made a plan. We're going to ignore it. That's more fun. Um, the counterpoint is what I see people doing a lot, especially in Trouble Rings, they have this obsession with, we gotta kill someone, that's the only way we win the game. And it's like, that's true, you're not wrong. But also, if you've nominated two people, both of which were decent candidates and you've tied, I almost never want to go for another execution just because we should be killing someone. I don't want to tell the evil team who our next candidate is. I want them to look at that other person. I'm hoping that at least one of those two people that we've just tied on was evil. That's probably why we've tied on them. That's how that works. Like, most likely one of them's evil. I want the evil team to be looking at those two as the evil candidates and not know what else we're thinking. If they've seen us then push for other votes and, you know, maybe if, if it exceeds, then great. We've ex we've executed our third favorite candidate for the demon. Whoop. Um, if it doesn't succeed, then you've just basically gone, oh yeah, don't kill them either. And they're the one you need to frame in the final three. Um, that's not helping us, right? So I, don't, I agree about skipping with no nominations and no voting. Uh, if you've started the voting process and you've not got the people you want on the block, stop. I think I can agree with that because I would argue that if you're in that situation, you've messed up already. <laughs> yeah, <fair. laughs> yeah, you should just have the conviction to execute one of those players. And it's the sort of thing where it's like, if we could assume that everybody was always playing like 100% like focused and trying to play optimally, that execute that never would have ended up tied in the yeah. first place. That's not really a reasonable assumption, so you can't like call out the, that last voting player as evil because like you know things happen. But yeah, but yeah. So I think I think if you're in that situation, the mistake happened prior to the yeah. point where you should be not executing. But I think that's a good point that you don't want to be giving away too much more information about who's good to kill. Yeah, it's amazing how difficult it is um, because the good team's entire game is a community like decision, right? So you don't know what your team is thinking. You know what you're thinking, you know what the people you're talking to are thinking, but at the moment that it comes to a vote, you don't. You know nothing. Um, you don't know what the community consensus is, and the last thing you want is to reveal the consensus yeah. uh, to the team who know what their consensus is immediately. They know from the start. You don't want to be showing them that off to them. Um, all right, so I'll, let's slide on to the next one here, yeah. which is one of mine, and I, I, I appreciate this is a weird contradiction to the thing I said about day one earlier. People don't trust fall enough, um, because a lot of the time you get to mid-game and people have either gone, I'm not claiming, or I'm fully out at this point, and actually, this, this applies a bit more as you get into other editions, but it's true in TB as well. If you trust someone, if you think they, you think they're socially good, even if they're alive, I don't, I don't care, alive, dead, whatever. Just tell them the truth. Um, Mid-game, that's important. It's really helpful. Uh, it gets a long way. If you trust one with someone who is evil, then you probably die or get framed, but also that tells you something. And what I find a lot is people tell the truth early, and mid-game, the only people who are telling information that they didn't tell right at the start of the game are maybe some top fours who are trying to die in the night, or an outsider who's trying to die in the night. And that's not actually helping um, most of the time, because that information is usually out there anyway. What, what I want... What I want as a good player in the mid game is for someone who's maybe been hiding, who now thinks, you know, I think Andrew and Capel well, no, <laughs> Andrew and Ben are good. Um, I don't know. There's like, 
Uh, I really, we need to remove the screen, man, because people should be seeing your face. <laughs> on this, on this. Um, and I don't know about, I don't know about Capelli and Tony and various others. So I'm just going to tell the people I trust because how they respond to that is also really important. Like that's how you're going to get the next social read. Once you trust someone. That you're getting no more information out of that. Your mind is already trusting them. That's how you're interacting with them socially. That's not going to change unless they change it. So if you want to learn more, change it. Give them some information that you, they didn't have before and see what comes back. Right? I, I think that something people probably hear from me a lot is, you died in the night. I don't think evil would kill them, like an evil player in this situation. So I trust you, so I'm going to tell you your information. That's something I do all the time. Uh, and I mean in any script, but especially in Trouble Brewing. Uh, if somebody dies and they look like it, they're just a good player who died to me, I'll just go tell them my information because I want that information to be out there. I want it. And like you said, that's how they're going to change the way that they act and the way they recontextualize things. So you can't act on information that you don't have. So I think that's also a large thing that a lot of players overlook about the game is that getting all the information on the last day isn't the same as getting it much earlier because the earlier you have it, the more you can tailor your executions and just the way you play out the game and get to a very different final three than you would otherwise. And we've talked frequently about um, uh, the, the fact that if you don't share information soon enough, people are trying to work it out while voting on final three, and that's how mayors die. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen I've had four games with mayors in this weekend they've all been executed in the final five or three everyone <laughs> uh, so I have one last point in the things I used to think in my opinions got an even stronger section which is a very long title um, <laughs> which is that confirmed outsiders are stronger than non-confirmed townsfolk Word. Uh, what do I mean by confirmed outsiders basically if you are in say a two outsider game and there is one person claiming to be the recluse and nobody else claiming to be an outsider, that recluse is confirmed, they're good, you can trust them, you can give them all your info, they are one of the strongest players you can have, and eventually the demon's gonna have to kill them instead of someone more important. So, like, don't ever execute that player just because they're a recluse. I think that's, I haven't seen it as much recently, I think players are getting a little bit better about this in general, but it's, uh, yeah, it's just like, it's very easy to come up with reasons to kill somebody who doesn't claim to have an ability that's like getting information. Yeah. But their, I, their ability is that they know they're the recluse. <laughs> I've, and I've got a midway, a midway transition from this to the next section where our opinions have stayed about the same, which is uh, people like executing recluses. Um, and the problem is that they usually do it on day one or day two. And the problem with doing it on day one or day two is you don't know yet if they're confirmed by outside account. Oh, by all means, if it should be a zero outsider game, eh, maybe you can just get off the recluse on day one or day two. But if it's supposed to be a two outsider game and you execute your recluse immediately, firstly, poor Undertaker. Um, but secondly, um, what, what did you do that for? Like, yes, they don't mind. Uh, if your execution criteria is they don't mind, you're not going to get very far in Clock Tower. Um, but it's it just doesn't help a lot of the time because you're you're going to find out at some point that that part of play, you might find out at some point even that player was going to get confirmed by outside account and you executed them just because you didn't have anyone else to execute on day one. That's not very helpful. Um, and actually, the recluse doesn't mess with that much. Yeah. Um, period. It's, <laughs> it's, it, that's that's pretty much it. it. Either they've messed with starting information and you can't do anything about it by killing him, or they're going to mess with Fortune Teller or Empath. And if the recluse is sat next to an empath and they haven't already claimed recluse to someone, yeah, kill him. Um, that's, that's an evil player that's found out they're sat next to an empath. Um, but otherwise, yeah, they're not messing with anything. Well, what's, what's the harm in leaving my life? That's not I would also helping. say that in general, a recluse being next to an empath, that is a legitimate reason like, to get rid of that misinformation. Yeah. 
So, but if they are a confirmed recluse, it might not be worth it. Um, but also, I find I do sometimes find it quite interesting to watch the storyteller um, in the, from the perspective of if one of the other neighbors die. To next, when the empath is sat next to a claimed recluse, see what the number happens. To the number is usually quite interesting because um, storytellers can be meted, Capelli. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Technically, there is a microphone in front of you. It's just not close enough. <laughs> let's see. Uh, okay, so <laughs> we already we already touched on this one, which is. Uh, Unless you know how someone will read you in advance, it's better to be ambiguous, uh, which is kind of the very first thing I said. So I'm not going to go into more on that. About whether you want to die, this was. Rather than oh, just, yeah, yeah, specifically you, about whether you want to die, not just in general. But, but I mean, yeah. but general about what you are kind of leads to whether or not you want to die. But Although I did see a really good uh, homebrew minion idea the other day, which was anyone who is happy to die might. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> um my next point on here is the spy is the strongest minion. Uh, this is something I've thought forever, and I still you mean think it. That that three-hour episode we did on the spy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I see you have a note in here though as well. Yeah, I um, when we wrote that and did that three-hour episode, um, the spy was my favorite ca- evil team character. It's probably a favorite character in Trouble Brewing. Um, I, he's no longer my favorite character. To What's be. wrong with you? Um, because. Frankly, the spy, when you get to a certain point, doesn't help as much as you think it does. Um, And actually, if I want to have fun, I either want to be the demon who's getting to kill people and run the show and then see when I want to star pass and have fun and mock people and be stupid, or the baron who gets to do whatever they like, run around, mock people and be stupid. Um, You know, it's a good theme. We're not here to have fun. We're here to win. (laughs) I've found a problem. (laughs) Um, Or the Scarlet Woman, where I get to push shade on my imp and run around, have fun, and mock the imp. Uh, This is like, there's, there's, in in no situation would I pick the spy over all of the others. I think it's massively powerful, and I can do a lot with the spy, but if I'm going to pull, like, my fantasy league of which evil character do I want to be in TV, it's no longer the spy. Sorry, spy. But your registering is good anyway, you don't mind. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think I, I, I still enjoy playing the spy quite a bit. Um, I think it's I, I enjoy the puzzle solving part of the game, which as spy you get like it's just a big puzzle at the very start. So that's very much appeals to me. But I can I can see why you feel that way. But you you quite like a, a, a big setting up worlds and setting up the strings and seeing seeing what you can get away with, right? Um, and I tend to run much more in a oh let's see what happens. Um, <laughs> could you tell? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I've got a couple of notes on the bottom here, and I, this one of these is the most important thing. Um, actually, both of these, I think, are the most important thing about TB to me. Uh, TB never gets old. No situation where I don't go... If someone goes, do you want to play TB? And I'm not doing anything at the time, I'll go, yes. If I'm sitting there in a circle and someone's gone, uh, we're about to play SNV, and someone goes, do you want to play TB? I'll probably go, yes. Um, if... <laughs> If it's BMR, I'll think about it. It depends how tired I am. But um, like BMR is pro- is canonically the best script. But uh, <laughs> but there's no situation where I don't strongly think about playing TV. <laughs> I can feel Andrew twitching next to me, which is my favorite thing about this. <laughs> whenever I make definitive statements, um, I mean that's that's what you're here for. And as an official representative of the Pandemonium oh, Institute. <laughs> These words uh, are recorded. I do forget that sometimes. (laughs) If Steve can get away with leaking stuff on your podcast, I can. (laughs) That's true. I can make definitive (laughs) statements about uh, about TV and BMR. It's fine. Uh, And the other one I've got is 
um, that I don't think people think about it enough. And I said earlier about playing good and evil and learning from it in TB and doing things differently. Um, I think TB is the testing ground where you should be trying everything. If you've got a, if you've got a strategy that's new, go and, go and do it in TB. I know that you don't necessarily have a character that plays into that strategy. That doesn't mean that you can't do it. If there's something new you want to do socially, that TB is the place to do it because you have complete confidence in the mechanics. You don't have to think about it. Like By the time you're trying weird and wonderful new things and social style, social plays, you know TB by now. You, you, could, you, know, you know all the characters. You don't have to look at the script very often. You, you mostly use the script to point at, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the level where you're like, okay, I want to try new stuff. I'm just pointing at things on the script. And so TB is the place where you go and do that because you know that mechanically you can do your thing you, what you get up to socially isn't going to impact it, but it means that you can then try all those things that you need, you want to do in some of the other scripts that involve a lot more thinking um, without having the pressure of, no, I actually need to get all the mechanics dead right as well. Um, and I, I love it a lot. And people frequently tell me that I'm being weird uh, when I'm playing TV. It's because I was like, well, like, someone g gave me an idea. Like, and I, that's, that's like the correct place to be <laughs> is being weird. Yeah. It's and uh, they, at one point, um, Aggie, who... Storytells on the TPI streams and plays in my regular group um, said something like, "You're being strange," and I had to admit that I'd just done a, a podcast <laughs> with Andrew where he gave me an idea. Um, and I was like, "Ooh, I wonder what happens if I do that." And then I played a game using a social strategy, which I'm not going to tell you about because it crashed and burned. Um, but I got executed uh, three times, not in BMR, um, because. <laughs> I got executed once and didn't die. I got executed again and did die. And then later, when we wanted to skip, they were like, Ed was being so weird, let's execute him again. Um, <laughs> no mechanical benefit whatsoever. They just were like, no, as punishment for whatever that was, um, <laughs> die. Uh, so, yeah, didn't work. But I, I did find it quite funny that, yeah, you talk to people about the game, and you'll have had this. That I'm now talking to people at the con. I apologize to anyone who's uh, listening to the podcast and isn't having conversations with people literally as we speak about Clock Tower. When you speak to people at the con about what, you, what you've been up to, stories in the game, you'll come up with ideas of like, oh, that was a really cool thing that someone did. And then you'll think, oh, I want to try that. Do you know where you try that? TB! All right. Yeah, that's it. You yeah. get us back on script, Andrew. Yeah, that's, that's my job here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I have one that might be controversial. It's not controversial. Which, I which is, I think it's fair to use the recluse and spy to mess with first night info characters. Basically, like, as much as you want as a storyteller. I don't think it upsets the balance of the game. No, that's what they're designed for. That's, they're, yeah. that's why they're there. If, you don't, if you're not using them at all, that's fine. You know, occasionally you do that. But if you never use them, then people learn that. I, I, think it's, I think it's, like, it's okay to even get to the point the investigator sees a recluse like, more often than they see a minion. I, like, you, could, you don't have to do that. You can certainly have your investigator be getting real minion info as much as you want. But I think that it's fine if that's where your group gets to. And like that, I feel like that opens up plays for the minions. But it also just sort of turns the uh, investigator into like a librarian, which is also a townsfolk. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, conversely, uh, I think the level you should be aiming for with how much you're messing with your starting info, uh, your first night info, is you want them to be suspicious when they see the correct thing. You, yeah. want, some, you want a librarian that sees recluse to go what are you up to? Um, you want an investigator who sees a spy to go, oh, why? Uh, that's the level of like messing with, he's just like, I don't trust this at all. Like, because that means that the instant they've got their info, they're engaging with the game. And if we take this out of the mechanics for a minute, which admittedly we don't do very often, I need to remember to do that. 
this game is great because you immediately have a community and you engage with people and you talk to people and you get to empathize and learn and try and talk to people and experience different perspectives. And the fact that the instant uh, any top four gets their information, they have a reason to talk to two people and about two people is a great way to be a community. And you, it's new people, unless you've got a storyteller who always gives you the same two targets, which is well, that, yeah, That's why, as a storyteller, you want to get those new players involved by showing them to the top four characters. <laughs> 100%. Not and the it, chef, it, I and guess. Using, top yeah. three. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We you show them to the chef, it's a problem. <laughs> uh, if you show the chef a, a waffle, though, they will, they will try and work out as a pancake. Uh, I, I think a waffle is a one. <laughs> Well, I mean, pancakes, depending on... Yeah, anyway. Um, a pancake <laughs> is a zero. Yeah. What, what? Is the, what is the two in the uh, pancake waffle? What's the next counting uh, system? But it's not French toast. Uh, no, I'm not buying French toast. I'm but wait, we're in we're in pastries here, right? So like, I could I could buy an argument for sausage rolls. I think it's a croissant. Sausage. Oh, croissant. I could buy... Yeah, that's... It's, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a croissant. <laughs> a waffle is literally whatever number you want it to be. It's squares. You just break it apart. <laughs> Defaults to four, and it goes anywhere you want from there. Ed, do you, you hear something? Crazy UK. Uh, do you hear? I feel like there's a voice. <laughs> <laughs> you could edit that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's let's get in let's get into the uh, the section where we've changed our minds on things, uh, things I used to think. Wait, nope, that's not what it says. Things I th why did I phrase it like this? <laughs> things I think now, but used to disagree with. Yeah, let's just pretend we never saw that, and I'm going to scroll that off the top of the screen. The sentence that we were looking for is things I used to think, but don't think anymore. Isn't that easy to understand? Wait, no, no. There's a slight distinction. These are things you think now, but used to disagree with. So these have to be things you think now, not just things you used to think that you don't. Think. Oh, that would imply that you don't think of them now. But, but these like, are things that you do think now. Okay, I was trying to get to your intent, and you were trying to get to legal pedant, <laughs> which is weird because I'm the one who do deals with laurel. It's not the way around this is supposed to work. But this is almost entirely green, so I'm just going to have a nap. You carry yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Listen, three for threes are not helpful. That did not get the reaction I was expecting. Yeah, no, everyone's just like... I, there have been multiple times looking. that when the people in this room, have, there's just been a susurrus of years. Um, <laughs> but that one, nothing. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So, three for threes. The practice of giving three rolls that you might be for three rolls someone else might be. Do you know how many demon bluffs there are? That, that is right, three. <laughs> they need a waffle. <laughs> yeah, it's one more than a waffle. Wait, no, one more than a... What did I say? Croissant? Uh, <laughs> um, it's a tri-waffle. I, 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 I think that three for threes are just generally... So for one thing, there are so many players who give three characters that they aren't any of them. Yeah. So you can't trust a three for three. Hi. Hi. Uh, you can't remember a three for three unless you're taking a lot of notes, which takes a lot of time, which you don't always have. And just generally, it doesn't like make you any more ambiguous than if you always just like hard claim something, and yeah. you don't. Then nobody knows if you're lying or not. And what's more memorable, right? I'm going back to one of my early points. What's more memorable? Someone giving you three characters, or someone telling you if their character icon would hurt if I threw at them from ten feet away. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm just saying that's surprisingly useful in TV. It really narrows it down. And it's <laughs> what, what characters wouldn't. No, because, I mean, you've got, like, the washerwoman okay. and the, li- the librarian depends on the book. So it's kind of... But the investigator's got to have quite good aim and be able to get a good rotation I, on that. I don't want you to... <laughs> please don't throw a magnifying glass at me. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it's very rarely going to hurt much. And you will remember, right? There's nothing about that conversation that you won't remember. If someone looks at you like you're dropped off some other planet and then goes, yeah, I, I mean... I noticed when it hit me, but it's probably all right. <laughs> like you remember that, and then you glance at the sheet later, and you're like, "What? Well, I don't remember what three characters they claimed, but it would hurt." So, um, <laughs> um, I, I think. I think. Do you have anything further to say on that? Or no, no, no. Just, I, I like, genuinely dislike three for threes. Yeah, for I think all the reasons you've stated. Every, and then I, just, I, had I don't. I stop listening when you start telling me three characters you might be because it's just. I don't. You could be lying. You could be telling the truth. But even if you are, it's not very helpful. That isn't where I thought that sentence was going when you started with, I stopped listening when you start. And I was like, oops, sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, my, my next, next thing here is, this is something where, this is an opinion that probably has changed quite a bit from what I've said on the podcast in the past. Yep. Uh, I now think that in Trouble Brewing, going after minions is very close to as important as going after the demon. I, I think I've said before that like you want to be focusing your efforts on going after the demon because that's how you win, which is true. But there's just a lot of factors in Trouble Brewing that make it so that the minions are quite strong as well. Mm. Um, For one thing, eliminating poisoner candidates will help you to gradually gain trust in the information as you gain it throughout the game. Eliminating the Scarlet Woman is very close to eliminating the demon uh, for most of the game. The spy, I mean, they can catch a star pass at some point and be hard to detect. But if they're hard to detect, you don't really know that you're going after a minion anyway. So that's kind of borderline. Baron is another one where, yeah, any of the minions can catch a star pass. So and I, as, well, oh, one last thing. Yeah, go on. Before you interrupt me, Ed. Come at me, Nathanson. <laughs> Do you, Capelli and I are starting a fight club. You want to join? It's, I, fabled, it's a fabled, uh, fight club. fabled fight club. Okay, I'm in. Okay. Um, we, I mean, we can talk about this later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, true. That's I'm not true. fabled yeah, anymore. You got, oh, no. You got side promoted side promoted i'll take it like that's the nicest thing that uh, you could have that's a really nice way of describing that i got side <laughs> promoted <laughs> um you were gonna make a point <laughs> uh, apparently okay, I, apparently power. i interrupted you <laughs> <laughs> voting power uh when you have more evil players live it's harder to uh, get votes to go the way the town wants them to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take very many players to make it look like a lot of town supports something, which will make players less likely to try to overturn it because it just feels like a waste of time. The bigger the game, I think, the more true this is. In a smaller game, you can probably just go straight for the demon. But yeah. in a big game, you're going to get very strong evil voting blocks very quickly. I also think it's it's useful for a bit of a meta reason um, because how you can kind of read from the storyteller how well you're doing based on the information you're getting. Um, and one of the things I've found quite interesting is when you've uh, executed someone you was accused of being a minion, uh, the, that Undertaker information is some of the best information in the game. Not because you might get a minion token, but also what minion token you get and whether they get a minion token at all. Um, because I find it really interesting comparing a social read that made you think you should execute that person with suddenly getting actually shown a Scarlet Woman when an investigator saw a Scarlet Woman. It's like, that, for me, that sort of puts... It gives you a lot of information about how the storyteller's thinking, right? It's like, for that situation, they knew they were showing you Scarlet Woman. But whereas if they, you know, player sat next to an empath and we've executed them because we think they're evil, probably a minion, not bothered, we're going to execute that player. 
and you've got an undertaker that you don't know whether you trust or not and they get an evil character you learn a lot about either this is true or the storyteller wants you to believe that that player was evil and that really t tells you where the game is going a lot more um it's amazing how often as well you get to late game and that minion the storyteller had to show you on night two when you executed someone and the undertaker was drunk or poisoned whatever that is going to give you more information than they thought it did at the time because they didn't know what you were thinking they didn't know what you're going to think for the next four days and then suddenly you go actually this tells us quite a lot because we know that there wasn't a baron or that there was a baron or there wasn't a spy or almost certainly wasn't a spy you know it gives you a lot more than they think it does so again mentoring your storytellers is uh, surprisingly powerful and i think it's fun um so you should do it at every opportunity <laughs> uh, especially to me uh, i love hearing about people met me especially when they go he wouldn't do that or even better this is the sort of thing he would do and i go I don't remember ever doing it, but that does sound like the sort of thing I do. <laughs> so speaking of like using executions on the right targets, mm. uh, I think that executing good empath neighbors is, uh, I'm going to say this in a kind of careful way, it's almost never as good a use of your resources as executing almost anybody else. I say that because I think it can move you closer to winning the game. I think it is, a, is something, executing empath neighbors that are good, like, let's say the empath got a zero, if you execute their good neighbors, it will get you more information. It will bring you closer to winning the game. Mm. But I don't think it does as much for your win as executing other players who are not confirmed good players by the empath. I think that there's, there's kind of two situations here. confirmed loosely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's two situations here. Either that empath is good and they're confirming good players, in which case, cool, that's useful, good to know. Um, and I don't want to execute them because they're good. Uh, or that's someone bluffing empath who is confirming two good players and I'm fine with that. Um, or that's an evil player trying to confirm other evil players. Now, the thing about evil players trying to confirm other evil players is the information mounts, right? You, once you get one, you get several in that situation. So people don't do it that often. But also, to me, the, the, this is a random, this is not agreeing or disagreeing with his point. It's just a thing about executing empath neighbors. I think the best reason to execute an empath neighbor is to see how their information changes. Not because I want to go, you went from a zero to a one, your new neighbor is evil. It's because I want to go, all right, okay, in the world where that player is evil, the empath is evil, why would they go to a, from a zero to a one? What, what world are they building here? And conversely, if that if if they've they've not had neighbors change and they try and change the numbers, that tells you a lot as well. Like you want the the great thing about empaths is that it's the easiest information in the world to bluff because you just say a number between zero and two. Mm. Um, and I people keep telling me that between zero and two is a terminology that means one. That's not how numbers work. Between is inclusive, um, and also no, zero is a number. While we're on the subject, uh, but <laughs> uh, but like. It, oh god here he comes <laughs> thank you all for coming uh, to the clock tower panel we're gonna have to call it right there um, I, I don't know the storyteller just woke me up and I'm showed me a croissant <laughs> I did try to show someone pie once when they knew they were drunk but that didn't <laughs> so it's, it's a do you just hold it up like one digit at a time <laughs> <laughs> that would have been. That would have been no, I was trying to do the symbol uh, with my. Oh like, yeah. This. <laughs> um, but also, that would have been in our like what 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 pastry is uh, each number? Like if we're rounding pi, that would be three, right? So that's not. I mean, yeah. If you're an engineer. <laughs> yeah, if you're an engineer, not not physicist. Um, so don't don't round pi to three if you're a physicist. That's not going to help. 
anyway, that was a tangent. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, uh, empath. It, bluffing is empath. Um, as soon as an, an empath neighbor dies, it's best if it's in a situation where they don't know it's going to happen. If you give an, an evil bluffing empath... We executed your neighbour. They have all time, all the time they want to decide how they're going to, what they're going to claim next. If they wake up in the morning and the demon has killed one of their neighbours, they've got to just decide what they're claiming. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually really, that's really powerful social information. And you can sometimes you can see them decide. Uh, that's quite fun as well because uh, there's two reasons for an empath to look surprised when they wake up. Both of them are because one of their neighbours has died, um, and one of them is, "Damn, I thought that person was evil. Why have they died at night?" And the other one is oh damn, I need some more information. Um, and both of those are really quite useful to you because you can get a read on which one it's more likely to be by talking to the empath. Um, so I'd much rather empath neighbours died at night. And if you if you just try choose to arbitrarily trust those empath neighbours with an empath of zero, a lot of the time they will. Not necessarily because they are actually good, but also demons like to kill those just because it reinforces bluffs as well. Like if, they, if the demon is sat there with an empath of the zero, they will often kill their neighbor to yep. be like, well, now I can give more information, but also it makes me look trustworthy because they chose to kill my neighbor, right? I'm, I'm confirming people. Um, and so it gives you more and more as you go. Like the, everything, everything has a social read. I, I, think um, it's, <laughs> I think it's also, when I was originally writing this, I was actually kind of thinking about this as like, you are the empath and oh, you see. get a zero. So I want to I want to touch on that as well. This is that was the situation where I was thinking it's, it's especially like you shouldn't be going after your neighbors to get more info is kind of what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I like where you took it uh, <laughs> from the rest of the town's perspective. Yeah. I do think that from the town's perspective, there are definitely times when you would want to kill the empath's neighbors when they have a zero. Yeah. Um, but it's usually because of other information, yeah, not rather than because of it's the not, empath. It's not entirely because of that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's lots of like circumstances that can contribute to it. Yeah. And as an empath, sometimes you'll be like, okay, I'm fairly sure I'm drunk based on everything that's been told to me, so yeah. let's kill my neighbors. But I think just like in the abstract, if you are an empath, you get a zero. I just don't think it's very strategically useful to try to get more information by extending your range as yeah. opposed to just keeping those players alive. Because if they're alive at the end, or well, either they're going to die naturally yeah. Of natural causes. Uh, <laughs> Na I, natural causes as it comes to Ravenswood Bluff, which is <laughs> brutal murder. But they're, they're very similar to natural causes. Don't ask questions. Don't ask about the medical service. And um, in, that, in that case, they're going, uh, your range is going to be extended already. Yeah. Or they're going to be alive at the end, and you win. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much how that works. It's great. Um, so yeah. Do you want to move on to another point? Because we've just wandered all around the empaths I, on this. I feel like also, now that I'm reading that last point in this next one, I feel like two of the games I've played recently are like things that almost contradict these, but I still believe them. Uh, <laughs> uh, this one is, it's okay to execute the saint early. Um, brackets. If you have a reason to. Close brackets. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is, uh, I think that it's keeping the saint alive, certainly to the end, you have the most time to gather information about them. Mm. Uh, however, I think that if you already have information pointing to them being evil, it's often better to pull the trigger early for uh, purposes of killing minions, primarily. Uh, they, it will, if they're the demon, you might just win. But if they are a minion, you would like to remove that possibility as soon as possible. It lets you build more focused worlds. So killing a saint can, or a claimed saint, if you believe that they are not the saint, uh, I wouldn't recommend executing someone you believe to be the saint. Uh, <laughs> killing an acclaimed uh, saint will either, yeah, it could lose you the game instantly, but if you have enough reason to believe that they are evil, then that will close off many worlds down the line because the longer you keep them alive, the longer you're going to have to think, okay, somebody could be poisoned right now. 
by that saint who could be the poisoner. Somebody, you, you have the possibility of someone star passing to them if they somehow gain trust later. Um, you, it's just, and, all, and also with the voting, it goes back to the voting. So that's, that's very much related to the idea of wanting to kill minions early. Um, like if you were only trying to kill the demon, then leaving the saint who might be the demon alive forever until the final three is fine. But if you're thinking about killing minions early, uh, it, it, I think it just makes a lot of sense to close off that world so that you can be more focused in the way you're playing the game in the future. Yeah, and I totally agree. It's, it's one of the most, it's actively a meme, right? Is uh, the, it, the saint is the poisoner, right? That's, that's just the, a thing. Um, because they do it so often, and there's a reason they do it so often, is because the only person apart from the demon who wants to survive to the end of the game is the poisoner. And so they want to be claiming saint. And you know the poisoner's favorite thing is when they survive to a game to the final three by claiming saint poison people the entire time by claiming saint and then they get executed in the final three because they were claiming saint right call that bluff sometimes like if, if you've got a reason that you think that person is dodgy and especially because saints tend to tend to get a lot of um a lot of sort of free passes yeah, from people saint, saint is like the only character where players will be like i am actively very suspicious of you i think you're evil Let's not execute you. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the only—it's uh, the only character where that happens. It, and it's—and it's not just—and it's, it's like—and it's not just information, right? People will do this all the time. The saint will vote on something that you're like, "Why did you vote on that?" And then you just leave that be. I'm like, <laughs> kill this bastard. Let's go. No, I'm not having it. Um, so uh, this kind of segues nicely into one of the other points that I've got, which is uh, well, actually you started this, and it's something that I greatly agree with, and I was disappointed that you'd beaten me to it, to be honest. Uh, which is ghost votes can and often should be used earlier than people currently use them. Uh, they're not only for the final day. Do you know the thing about the final day? The evil team still has fewer votes than you, even if you've used one or two already. Uh, they don't have a lot less than you, and so you do need to be m more aligned than you would be otherwise. But if that ghost vote breaks a tie and gets rid of that poisoner claiming saint, that's a win, right? If you spent one ghost vote and killed an evil player, you've gained from that use of a ghost vote. It, it's not, it, you know, ideally you wouldn't have to use it, but the situation where this comes up is one of something we all know. The first couple of days in TB, you will more often than not have executed two good players. And do you know what some of those two good players can do, especially if they're investigators that have got information that, you know, if they throw that ghost vote to get someone they strongly and sincerely believe is evil out of here, They've helped, even though they don't have a, a, a vote, ghost vote in the final three. I think, I think it's something where you can calibrate whether or not you should be using ghost votes based on how many evil players you think you've killed. Or, alternatively, what the worst case scenario is. Mm. Because there's a lot of times when it's like, we might have killed a good, uh, an evil player, but there's also a chance there's three of them alive right now. Yeah. If you're feeling like you're in that situation, you're either in the good world where good is winning pretty well and you don't, won't need your ghost vote later, or you're in the bad world where you really need to use your ghost vote right now. Yeah, and if you've got great conviction about something, and um, you know, people that watch various streams will see Patters do this frequently. Patters loves to throw a ghost vote because what he's basically saying is, I believe in this strongly enough that I want to dissuade you from even thinking about doing anything else. I spent a resource for this. And that's a social play. It looks like a mechanical play, but that's a social play. He's getting in your head and going, this was important enough to me that I want this person dead to the point that I no longer have an, any mechanical interaction with the rest of the game. The only thing I get for the rest of the game is my voice because I've spent my only vote to get this guy dead. I will and that means say that so much. It's not like it is social, but a part of the reason it's so strong socially is that evil players have far fewer ghost votes than good players. 
So it's a much bigger deal for an evil player to spend that. So it's like, if they're committing that hard, most of the time evil players aren't willing to commit, commit that hard to what story they're trying to sell, especially when it's a story that might get disproven immediately after the vote succeeds. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to address this from the other perspective. We've talked a lot from the good perspective. As evil, you, it, like, that is true. You have fewer ghost votes. But also, that's also a really powerful way of keeping today's execution where you want it to be. If your demon is the second biggest candidate for execution, and you look at the hands going up on the other candidate for execution, and they're not enough, and you throw your ghost vote on there, they're not executing your demon. I mean, they might if you were, you were linked to them. But otherwise, you're probably going to get away with that other plane getting executed and the demon at least getting a chance to star pass, a chance to do something else, a chance to, to do what evil do. And throwing a ghost vote out there um, is, again, it works so strongly because it's such a... It's so... Well... I'm going to say it's so meaningful to people. It's so meaningful to people that don't get drunk and forget they've got that they died. Uh, but uh, outside of that situation, it means a lot to the rest of town because they're like, whoa. And it means a lot because someone has to bend over and take that token off the, the town square and literally have a physical thing you had to do to go, this is how important it was to me. I, I think this ties into as well, when you're doing this as evil, you don't want to do it when you have to. <laughs> oh yeah. You want to. I think. I think it's very strong for evil to spend their ghost votes and in, in situations where they are not being forced to to save their demon, which is the most common time you'll see it. Mm. Um, I think that proactively doing it will get get you the results you want in a way that doesn't like link you to any particular players. So that when in the, when it's re, re when it's reexamined later. Uh, there's not any extra information to glean from it. Yeah, I mean, if I go back to that Pat's example, he will sit there with his hand up going, I believe this and I'm using my vote. I'm using my vote. Don't question it. I'm using this ghost vote. And then he'll hold his hand there and then sometimes he'll drop it because he's a bastard. <laughs> but um, <laughs> spent too much time playing with me. Um, uh, but the vast majority of the time, he's telling you it's going to happen because he's going, this is, I believe in this. And it's not like, I don't want that. It's, I believe in this. You he says, trying not to punch, <laughs> punch things off the table. Jesse would kill me. <laughs> Tyler would also kill me. I, there would be a lot of collateral damage. Um, <laughs> All right, I've got, an, I've got another hot take. Oh, I like this one. Is this this one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. I, I think Undertaker is one of the weakest characters in Trouble Brewing. Uh, I said I like it. I didn't say I agreed with it. <laughs> Uh, they don't get any information to start the game, so they can't, like, they don't, they need you to execute somebody on the first day, but they can't contribute, like, mechanical Mater information to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to helping guide that, uh, that vote. Um, when they do get ex uh, information, it's on dead players, which is occasionally useful, but often it just tells you something you already knew. Mm -hmm. Um... And that that also ties into like it has kind of a it has a fairly poor interaction with the Virgin, for instance, yep. which is a character that makes you want to turn an, uh, an execution into information, but in doing so, you lose. I guess you could see this as being the Virgin being bad here as well. But it's like this particular combination of characters, I think, is fairly like is a fairly weak combination. Any game with a Virgin and an Undertaker, I would expect the good team to have a slightly harder time. Um, just because they're both characters that have executions as a resource, but they can't gain from the same executions very much. Yeah, I think uh, I, do, I kind of agree with some of this. I think it's one of the weaker characters on the script from a good perspective if you only evaluate it in a mechanical perspective. I think it uh, becomes much more powerful when you consider it in the context of it's one of the, f one of the characters that uh, the evil team don't necessarily know as well what's going on with it. 
Um, so actually, it can become quite powerful only in the context of it's information that the good team's getting that the evil team isn't. You know, the evil team knows what an empath's going to get. They know at least broadly what other information might be. They might not know exactly who's being confirmed by the washerwoman, but they know it's within the categories it's going to be in. The evil team, if it's not an evil player getting executed, they're like, I don't know what you've just found out as an undertaker. Yeah. This is why I'm, I'm, I am arguing against you gently. Um, they, they don't know what you're finding out and therefore they don't know how to fight against it. Like if, you, if you've got an undertaker who's just confirmed a fortune teller who earlier picked the demon, the evil team have to do something about that but they don't know that they need to do something about that because they don't know what the information was. There is, there's combinations of things here which can have more impact um, and I think the doubt in the evil team is puts more more in than, than you're giving it credit for. I, I think but mechanically, I 100% understand that if you went, how useful is this in isolation? The Undertaker's not that great. Oh, well, I think that, I think that a lot of that value comes from players playing in a way that like creates value for The Undertaker. So mm -hmm. the less you know about what people's true characters are, the more powerful The Undertaker's information will be because the evil team's not going to know what they're learning either. Yeah. Um, they can use that to confirm players to confirm themselves. It can be very powerful when you hit that full upside. Mm. Um, and but only if you've actually set up that upside. And yeah. a lot of the time, every strategy that everyone else wants to do isn't necessarily yeah. considering that because you don't know if there's an Undertaker. Why would you change what's going to make most sense for your character and the characters you've heard of for an Undertaker that you've no one's even whispered might be in play? Harking back to the earlier point, letting people know that there might be an Undertaker in play on day one, even if you're not claiming it, gives them some yeah. context of that. So, you know, if I hear, it, uh, genuinely, it, I really appreciate it on day one if someone goes, I've heard of an Undertaker. Actually really helps just because it, it gives does. you a little bit of a guide as to is it worth us even executing people for information um, from an Undertaker? Yeah, so I think Undertaker has a very high ceiling of how good it can be. Yep. Uh, and I think it's a character that is very hard to play around when the Undertaker is getting really strong info. Mm. I just, in practice, I have not seen it very often. That might be because I've been playing with a lot of new players recently. Like, I've been getting sort of like the the local scene in San Diego going uh, to a larger extent. And mm. so I've been playing tons of games with newer players. So that could be why. I, maybe, maybe with very experienced players, the Undertaker ends up being a lot stronger. Um, but just recently, I've noticed that the Undertaker loses a lot more often than other characters. And yeah, that's fair. I, th I think it's because... It's a hard. You have to work hard to get the value out of it. Makes sense. Uh, I'm gonna purely because I'm gonna do something I never do, which is try and keep us on script and say oh, say a <laughs> phrase that I absolutely hate, which is agree to disagree. Let's move on. Um, don't agree to disagree. Talk about it. Find common ground. Anyway, uh, do you want to pick another one? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we just got like two things, so we should be a, or a three. Oh, but, yeah. Okay. There's another one. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. Then there's another section. That, right, let's not waste <laughs> time talking about what we don't have time to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I think that something like a confirmed washerwoman or librarian is generally better to keep alive than like an ongoing source of information. Uh, this is related as well to like confirmed outsiders being stronger. Yeah. Um, so I think that the what, these roles that have something ti they're tying themselves to another character uh, or another player. So that is going to be useful whether they're good or not. Yeah. Um, and so I think keeping them alive until the point that you decide that, oh, it's time to execute them. <laughs> yeah. But I think that if you're having to choose between like the washerwoman who's confirming someone or executing the empath who we don't know anything about but is claiming to have ongoing info, uh, I'd often rather execute the empath. I, I, this isn't one where it's like, I think, always do this, but it's like, no. I just think people should consider it a lot more than they do. Yeah, pending other information, this, this could be more useful, is basically the point there. Yeah, I, I, a lot of my opinions recently have just been like, keep good players alive as long as you can. The ones, the players you can trust the most are the ones that should not be dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, Go on, do you know? 
you want to do that sort of one? Yeah. 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 I want to do that one. I like this one. Um, firstly, I have put the word words round robin in heavy quotes because I hate that. That's not a round robin. A round robin is a tournament format. Anyway, telling everyone, going round and everyone claiming their characters any time before the final day is not helping. Um, I, I know we've talked about getting information out there so that everyone can make decisions going into the final day and have some time to think about it, but actually sitting there having everyone go, you claim, now you claim, now you claim, most often isn't helping because there's like a quarter of this script who get screwed by that. Uh, the monk, the raven keeper, the soldier, any outsiders that have successfully hidden until now are sitting there going, well, I would have quite liked to not tell you that. Yep. Um, the, do you know the, e the best time, the easiest time for a Raven Keeper soldier to die or a monk to protect someone? F uh, the day after you've executed at five. Yeah. So if you're doing a, a round robin or a roll call or a character reveal at five, you're basically saying to those people, yeah, you know that ability that you, were, you, were, you might get to do like now? Yeah, don't. It's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's on the pool of candidates to be... Uh, Kill that night is the smallest. Yeah, so. and also I've it's like it's so hard to say no to as well. Yeah. Like if you're the one who is sitting there going, "Well, I'm the Raven Keeper, and I don't <laughs> want to do this." You can't do that because then it's like, oh well, never mind. That's, I've like, just it's, I, we might as well have just done it, and I could have not looked sus. Yeah. <laughs> Early on in the game, it's easy as one of those characters to just refuse to claim because you could be a, like a ongoing info or something. But yeah. That late in the game, the ongoing info ones are generally going to be happy to claim, but like Raven Keeper still won't be. So yeah, so. this is just an open plea to everyone to never call for that on Final Five if you can avoid it. Right, um, we have one last thing. Capelli's like making a weird signal to me. Uh, <laughs> I think he was stretching or something. Uh, <laughs> um, I put this section here. I didn't have anything for it, but you added something. Entirely new ideas slash thought technology. Ed, you have one minute, then we got to stop. <laughs> okay. Uh, I didn't really have something that's entirely new. It's just something that I have a, a strong opinion about, and people don't listen to it enough. I don't know why, because all my opinions are great. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, people have better social reads than they think they do but not when they're thinking about them. Um, people have a lot, there's a lot of people who say, oh, my social reads are terrible, or my social reads are great, or, you know, that person's social reads are top-notch. People tell me that all the time, that my social reads are great. Um, I'm not necessarily ha talking about good social reads as a, as a mental uh, problem. It's not, a, there's, no, there's no algebra problem that goes, that person twitched like this, and that means they're evil. That's not how that works. The way that social reads work is your subconscious interacting with their microtics to tell you information. And so the most powerful way to channel your social reads is to not decide whether you're voting until you have to vote. Because panic is the moment that your system goes, this is the call. And everyone's done this, right? The, the whole toss a coin to, to decide what the correct <laughs> information is. That is so powerful in Blood on the Clock Tower. People sit there going, you know, I don't have good social reads, so I ignore them. No, what you need to do is, I don't have good conscious social reads. Let's see what my subconscious has got. I guarantee you, you will get success. Everyone I tell this to who's like, look at me, I'm literally being laughed at in the audience. But everyone that I convinced to try it, you will discover that, <laughs> you, will discover that you, you have better social reads than you think. You just don't know that because you're too busy thinking to listen to your social cues. There we go. That was yeah. more than a minute, and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that is all the time we have. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you all for uh, coming to watch us here. And Ed, thank you for being on. Uh, any opportunity to talk bollocks with a good friend. Kelly. And that is all the time we have. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> thank you, everyone.